The following sermon was delivered to Christ Central Church in order to further our knowledge and adoration of who God is. We pray that it displays the hope found in Christ and strengthens your faith in Him. Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. Jesus is a friend of sinners. What incredibly good news. He went out again beside the sea and all the crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Here we see the story of Jesus calling the fifth of his twelve disciples. Mark identifies him as a man named Levi. Levi is also named Matthew. This is the calling of Matthew to follow Jesus as a disciple. This is the Matthew who wrote the Gospel of Matthew. And we learn in this story one of the primary things about Levi is that he is a tax collector. And to, in order to fully understand the weight and the gravity of Jesus calling this man to be his disciple, we have to understand the culture in Jesus' day as it pertained to Jews and to Rome and to tax collectors. Israel, Judea, Samaria, Galilee, majority of the known world at this point are under the rule of Rome. It's also important to remember that to a Jewish person, the land represented almost everything. It was so vitally important to them. It, it, it represented the inheritance. It is the, the promised land. And now their land is under the rule and occupation of another kingdom. It's under the rule and the occupation of Rome. And it's under the, the rule of the emperor of Rome. And for a Jew in Jesus' day in these areas of Judea and Samaria and the Galilean area, there were a 
couple of ever-present reminders of the Jewish rule and occupation of their land. And those two constant realities were Roman soldiers and Roman taxes. So as a Jew in a promised land, the ever-present reality that now there is another kingdom who is ruling was constantly in front of you through the, the occupation of Roman soldiers. And we know in um, the Galilean area and here in Capernaum that there were Roman soldiers there. There was a centurion station there, a constant reminder. But more than that, was Roman taxation. And there were three primary taxes for Jews, not just for Jews, but for, for anyone who was under Roman rule. Three primary taxes. One of them was a land tax. And so Rome would receive from any of, of their Providences around the, the world, a land tax, which represented 10% of the harvest. So each year, Rome would receive 10% of the goods or 10% of the money from the land that was used. A second tax was that of a poll tax. This was... Um, just a census tax. So whenever a census was taken, if it was taken each year, you would have to pay Rome a tax to live in, in part of their land. And the, the census tax or the poll tax was equivalent to about a day's wage. So not a, an extremely high tax, but still a, a tax nonetheless. And then there was a third tax, and it was the customs tax. And the customs tax was on goods that traveled in or out of areas under Roman occupation. You can think of a customs tax as sort of a toll. And so if you were doing business in a Roman-occupied area, and you were a, a, a businessman or a merchant, and you had goods leaving the area, then as they left, you would have to pay a tax. You would have to pay a toll on those goods. If goods were coming in, the same, you would have to, to pay a tax on these. And that, that tax ranged anywhere from 2 to 5% of the goods. And it was a tax that was paid up front. And so if you're a businessman, you had to, to pay this tax on these goods before you ever sold the goods. You had to, to pay these custom tax. And this is the kind of tax collector that Levi was. And Jesus finds him here in a booth. 
a, a toll booth, if you will, a, a tax collecting booth here in Capernaum collecting customs tax, probably mostly on fish. So fish was the, the primary um, resource for the area and the, most of the business was done through the buying and selling of, of fish. And so here's Levi in his tax collecting booth here in Capernaum um, collecting custom taxes on behalf of Rome. Customs taxes were different than the land or the poll taxes collected by Rome because they were not collected directly by Rome. So Rome would collect directly the land tax and they would collect directly the poll tax but they would not collect directly the customs tax instead what you had were were businesses you had group of groups of of men who maybe would would form a a business and their business would be tax collecting and so they would make a bid to Rome to be granted the right to collect taxes for a certain area. So it would go like this. Say you and your friends and had, a, had a business together and you said, all right, we're going to collect taxes. And you went to, to Rome and you said, we're going to collect taxes for the city of, of Capernaum. And we uh, make a bid that we will pay you this year $1 million in taxes. And then if Rome accepts your bid, then you are given the right to collect taxes on behalf of Rome. And, and you have to keep your word, do what you said you would do, and collect the amount of, of taxes that you bid or said that you would be able to collect for that year. And that was it. That was how it was done. Rome's hands were off. And it was up to these tax collectors to, to run the collection of the, the customs taxes. So, the way they made money was to collect more than they bid. So you say, we're going to collect for you, Rome, $1 million. And then you decide as part of your business, actually, we're going to collect $2 million so that we send Rome a million and we get to keep a million. And Rome's hands are off of this. There is very little regulation as to the collection of customs taxes. Because each tax collector or group of tax collector sort of do their own thing. And there's, there's a, a deregulation um, on the, the tax collecting. And you had tax collectors who were using it as a means to get rich. And so because there was little regulation, there was lots of corruption. There was robbery taking place. There was extortion. There was cheating. There was fraud. These tax collectors could set the value of the goods themselves. 
And there was nothing as, a, as an everyday businessman that you could do. There was no recourse for you. They set the value. Say you had a cart full of fish and you knew this cart full of fish is worth $50 and you come to the pole, to the, to the, um, to the booth, and the tax collector looks and says, you know how many fish you got? All right, well, that looks like $300 worth to me. You owe me 5%. No, it's only $50 worth of fish. There was no one to, to argue with. I understand this. I, this is what we do for a living. We buy and sell goods and get stuff through customs. And when they find you, there's not a thing you can do. Who do you appeal to? There's no one to appeal to. They had no one to appeal to. There was nothing they could do or say about the issue. And so you put all of this together, a dislike of Rome, the realization that they're under the rule and the occupation of another kingdom, a deregulated, corrupt tax system, and the hate of tax collectors by the Jews ran deep. Jewish writing put thieves robbers and tax collectors in the same category. A tax collector was not allowed to enter into the synagogue. Not allowed. If a tax collector came into your home, your home would be considered unclean. Because of their presence. For a Jew, bearing false witness, lying, is a sin, right? Thou shalt not bear false witness. Unless you were lying to a tax collector. Then it was okay. This is the cultural setting of the day. And all of this makes verse 14 remarkable. So we can't just read this and think, oh, here goes Jesus again. He's walking along and he sees somebody and he calls them to follow me, just like he's done with Simon Peter or Andrew or James and John. No, he's walking by a tax booth and he looks at a tax collector and he says to the tax collector, follow me. Jesus calls him, and as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. So it's not that Jesus didn't know who this man was. He knew exactly who this man was. He knew exactly what he was doing. He knew exactly what his occupation was. He knew exactly how he was looked at by the Jews. And he said to him, follow me. Follow me. This is what Jesus does. He goes to the most unlikely and he finds them and he calls them to follow him. He calls them to become a disciple. This is what Jesus says in Luke 15 in a similar story, starting in verse 1. Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners, and he eats with them. 
So he told them a parable. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. And just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. This is what Jesus does. He goes after the lost sheep. He goes after the ones that the religious establishment say there's no hope for them. This is who he goes after. And so he's there at the tax booth he looks Levi in the eyes and he says, follow me. And Mark tells us that he rose and followed him. He got up and he followed him. Now that sounds weird for somebody to walk by and say, hey, follow me. And you say, okay. You know, and you leave your job and everything behind and you follow him. But remember what's been happening here with Jesus, everybody is hearing about him. Remember, the whole town is at his door. He can't even enter into cities. He's left out in the desolate places. So there is certainly the realization that that Levi, before this point, has seen Jesus. He's probably heard Jesus. He's heard his teachings. He's been exposed to him. And now this man, Jesus, comes to him and calls him and says, follow me. And he got up and he followed him. And then Mark tells us that at some point, Levi throws a party for all of his friends to come and to meet this man, Jesus, who has changed his life. Verse 15. And as he reclined at the table in his house... This is Levi's house, not Jesus' house. As he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Luke records the same story in Luke chapter 5 and verse 27. gives us a little more of a picture of what's happening here. And after this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at a tax booth and said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. So Levi has thrown what Luke tells us is a great feast and that he has invited lots and lots, a large company of tax collectors to come. Now we learn a couple of things from this. One, we learn, I believe, that Levi probably was corrupt because he had means. He was able to throw a large feast and he had a large home and he was a tax collector. And we also see what happens, what should happen when you meet Jesus and he changes your life. That you want everybody else to meet him. 
And so he throws this party. And here is Jesus reclining at the table. And in their days, it would lay, you know, lay into the table, feet out on one elbow, eating with the other hand, reclining at the table, eating together, sharing a meal to them. In the Middle East, sharing a meal is a personal thing. It's a deeply personal thing to dine together, to share a meal together. Uh, think of it this way. It was so important, this, this act of sharing a meal. And it was so much a, a symbolism of, of unity together that it was one of the primary defining, defining marks of the early church. Right? And they met together in each other's homes and they broke bread together and they ate together. And so here is Jesus in this, in this tax collector's house. Now remember, if a tax collector comes in your house, your house is unclean. So imagine what they think of a tax collector's home. And then Jesus is there doing one of the most personal things you can do. He's, he's sharing a meal with them. They're eating together. And Mark tells us that the scribes of the Pharisees are scandalized by what's taking place. Verse 16, and the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors. So you've got now sinners and tax collectors. These, these phrases go together usually for a Jew, sinners and tax collectors. Sinners are people who don't try to keep and observe God's laws. And then tax collectors, well, you know who they are. And here is Jesus. He is eating with sinners and tax collectors. And it said, they, Mark tells us that he said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, that seems like a, just a common, regular, you know, well, why is he eating with tax collectors and sinners? But that's not how this question was asked. Luke tells us in Luke 5.30, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, why do you eat? and with tax collectors and sinners. This is accusatory questioning by the religious leaders, the scribes of the Pharisees. These aren't just scribes and these aren't just Pharisees. These are scribes of the Pharisees. These are the, the, the scribes of the scribes. They cannot believe he's eating with them. Can't believe it. And Jesus overhears them. And he could have actually heard them or he's already proven that he can look at the intentions of one's heart. Verse 17, and when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. What's Jesus' response? Jesus' response is to tell us what it is that he has come to do. That he has come for the sick. And he draws a comparison between his ministry and the service of a doctor. And Jesus makes just a common sense observation here, right? 
And I, I kind of like it because these are the smartest of the smart, right? These are the scribes of the Pharisees. And Jesus takes the most common, everyday, common sense observation. Doctors are for the sick, right? Like doctors see the sick. That's who they, that's, that's what they do. And they see the sick, not so that they can get sick, but they see the sick so that they can make the sick well. That's what doctors do. And so Jesus says, that's what I do. That's why I'm here. I came not to call the righteous. I came to call sinners. I came for those who are sick, not for those who think they are. Well, now, we read this statement, I came not to call the righteous but, to the, to, but sinners. It makes me ask a few questions here. What does Jesus mean when he says, I came not to call the righteous? Does he mean that once he calls you and you are by his grace made righteous that you no longer need him? That's absolutely not what he means. We need the gospel every day. This is what Paul says. This is the gospel in which I receive, in which I stand, by which I'm being saved. We need Jesus. We need the gospel every day. That's not what he means, that once you're made righteous, then you no longer have need for him and he no longer has interest in you. Does he mean that there are some who will never need him? That there are some who are righteous that will never need him? And the answer to that question is absolutely no. Every person who has ever lived has been and is in need of Jesus. And then you may read this. And say, well, doesn't the Bible say that none are righteous? Right? The reason why everyone needs him is because all of us are sick. None of us are righteous. The Bible says that no one is good. No, not one. That all have turned away. That all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every person, there is none who are righteous. The Bible says your righteousness are like filthy rags compared to his holiness. So what does Jesus mean when he says, I did not come to call the righteous but to sinners? What he means is that he did not come to call the self-righteous. He didn't come for the ones who think themselves righteous. He did not come for the ones who think they are well and in no need of a doctor. He has come and he stands now for those who know they are sick. Because sin is sickness. And it has infected all of us. And it is terminal. The wages of sin are death. And Jesus has come to offer the only cure to sin. 
and he came to offer it to those who know they need it, not to the self-righteous. That means that if you think you're self-righteous, he is not for you. He's against you. Luke 19, Jesus said to them, Today salvation has come to this house since he is also is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. This is who the gospel of Jesus Christ is for. It's for those who know they need it. The gospel, Jesus' saving power, are for those who know that pretty good ain't good enough. That the measure is perfect holiness. The measure is perfect righteousness. And we have all fallen short. And here's what's remarkable, church. That Jesus stood and offered that to Levi. And he still stands and offers it today. That same offer is made. Revelation 3, 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him. And he with me. Anyone, tax collector or sinner, anyone, if you open the door, I will come in with you and I will eat with you. This is what Jesus was doing with the tax collectors and sinners. This is what Jesus is still doing today. What we see in this story is the radical ability of the gospel to reach and to change those that seem unchangeable, those that seem untouchable, the sinful that seem beyond hope. That's who Jesus came for. And so if you sit here today and you think yourself righteous, know he is not for you. But if you sit here today well aware of your sin and your shortcomings, then Jesus stands and knocks and he is willing and he is able to forgive and to heal and to come into you and to eat with you. So let me ask of us. Are there ways that we as a church, are there ways that you personally restrict the call of the gospel? Because that's what the Pharisees are looking to do. What in the world is he doing eating with tax collectors and sinners? Doesn't he know who they 
are, what are the Pharisees and what are the scribes doing? They're looking to restrict the call of the gospel on those who need it. And I can't help but wonder, are we as a church and are you individually, can we be found guilty of the same thing? Are we willing to do the hard work to take the gospel to the tax collectors and the sinners? Jesus didn't find Levi in the synagogue. He found him in the tax booth. He couldn't even get in the synagogue. Are we willing to do the hard work? Are we willing to go to those who need it? Are we willing to be uncomfortable? To be put in uncomfortable situations and uncomfortable positions with uncomfortable people? Are we willing to lose some control? Are you willing to have them in your home? Are you willing to go to that person who is emotionally draining? I wonder what would make us more happy as a church if next week we had five solid families come to our church from another church. I mean, five new, solid Christian families with well-behaved kids. Mm -hmm. Or if we had the drug addict visit or the criminal or the divorcee, the ones who are barely holding it together, what would make us more happy? Because Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. That's who it is that he is seeking. I'm not advocating for chaos. I'm not advocating for confusion. I'm not advocating for a different doctrine. But I am advocating for a place that loves people the way that Jesus loves people. That sees people the way that Jesus sees people. That is willing to bear the reproach from the so-called religious because of our love for the outcasts. Not tolerating sin. Not excusing sin. Don't think for a second that as Jesus sat with tax collectors and sinners, he looked at them and said, Oh, it's okay. I understand. You didn't know better. It's just a mistake. Jesus didn't excuse. Jesus didn't tolerate sin. This is what Luke says Jesus did at this feast. Luke 5 31 through 32, and Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. We're not tolerating sin, but we're saying, Sinners, would you come? And would you find a place? And would you find a seat? And would you, by God's grace, meet this man Jesus that we met? And when you meet him, would you repent of your sins? We're not tolerating sin, but we are absolutely being friends of sinners. Because Jesus is a friend of sinners.
And church, we need to realize that Jesus Christ can change anyone. And by the way, this church, it's already full of tax collectors and sinners. Just look in the mirror. Jesus, how remarkable it is that you, by your sovereign grace, went to a tax booth and called a tax collector to be your disciple. How remarkable it is that in the light of your grace, a tax collector repents of his sins and follows you and immediately becomes an evangelist. Father, I pray we would not be like the Pharisees, seeking, hoping to limit the call of the gospel, to put boundaries and barriers on who it is for, but that Jesus, we like you, would be friends of sinners. Not tolerating sin, certainly calling to repentance, but willing to bear the reproach because of our unshakable belief that Jesus Christ, you can change anyone because those of us who have been changed know the depth of our sins. God, would you help us? In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this Christ Central Church sermon series. To find our gathering location and more sermons, visit ChristCentralChurch.net.